evening. Good to see you here this evening. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter number 3. Revelation chapter number 3. And verse number 7. We have examined through letter number 5 to the seven letters, the seven churches of Asia Minor. In the first letter, the church at Ephesus, we learned of the danger of allowing our love to wane, leaving our first love. We next examined the letters to Smyrna and Pergamos. And from them we learn the lessons Christ has for us concerning suffering and persecution. We were encouraged by the Lord's word to Smyrna to never give up and warned by the rebuke of Christ to Smyrgamus to not even crack the door to compromise. Then we moved on to Thyatira and Sardis and from them we learned the importance of keeping our guard up and avoiding false teaching in our walk with the Lord. Tonight we examine the letter to the church of Philadelphia. Again, the modern city located there is in the country of Turkey. The the biblical city was located about 28 miles southeast of the city of Sardis. Of course, the name Philadelphia, as I'm sure you're aware, means the city of brotherly love. But how would we define love? What does it mean to love God? God defines his own terms when it comes to love because he states in John chapter 14 and verses 15 and then again verse 21, he that loves me will do what I say to do. The church at Philadelphia didn't have a lot of things that the other churches had. No riches, possessions, didn't even have a big name. Yet the one thing that God valued above everything else, they did have. What was that one thing? Well, that one thing that they had was love. And that was displayed in their obedience. What made the difference was love. And loving God meant that they loved him enough to obey him. Now... This church received no complaints from the Lord, only words of encouragement, exhortation, and promise as he presented to them open doors of opportunity to serve him. In the dispensational view, this church represents the 1700s and the 1800s, the time of revival and the birth of missions, modern missions in the church. It is in that time period that we see the birth of what came to be called the Puritans. And from their midst came individuals like John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, John Newton, author of the hymn Amazing Grace, and much of the force for the settlement of the Americas. It was also a time of great awakening, a time of Revival in England and in America. Filled with such names as John Wesley, Charles Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Finney. 
During this period, a great door was opened that would allow the church once more to spread the gospel worldwide. It was also a time of the birth of modern missions. William Carey got a vision for India. Adoram Judson went to Burma. Hudson Taylor founded the Inland China Missions. Robert Moffat and his famous son-in-law, David Livingston, went to Africa. Now let's look at the biblical record as we begin to look in chapter 3, verse number 7. It says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I'm coming quickly, hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, first of all, look at what this text reveals to us about the character of Christ. Verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, who opens and no man shuts, and shuts and no man opens. First of all, it says he is holy. This is that he is pure in character. Holy, of course, is a designation of God. Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 3. This is the trait ascribed to the Lord as he sat upon the throne in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8. Holy is a divine title, and of course it denotes that Jesus is God. Not only is he holy, but it tells us that he is true. He is perfect in unblemished truth. Jesus said of himself in John chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way and the truth, the truth and the life. It also tells us that he holds the keys of David. He is powerful in his sovereign authority. There seems to be here an allusion to the prophecy found in the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 22 and verse 22. It says there, the key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no man shall shut, and he shall shut and no man shall open. It is a historical scene taken from the time of Hezekiah's kingdom. Eliakim was a a servant of King Hezekiah. He was uh, over the treasury. And he was given administrative responsibilities in Hezekiah's kingdom. But when it says that Christ 
has the keys of David, it means that he has the authority that allows him to open and shut doors that no man can change. And of course, appoints to his authority. The holder of the key unquestionably controls the door. And so Christ governs the events of history here on earth. But it should be noted that, <clears throat> that Jesus does not give his church an open door as a payment for keeping his word. But rather he gives the acknowledgement that the keeping of his word presents those opportunities. Secondly, we're shown the condition of the church in verse 8. He says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one will shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. So once again, Jesus alerts the church to his knowledge of their circumstances. He says, I, I recognize that you have, den- have not denied my name. One of the things that comes out of this particular situation is that once again the Christians have been denounced. Once again, the Christians have been thrown out of the synagogue in Philadelphia. He says, but they have not denied my name. They have not taken back the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy in the Old Testament. He says, and they have kept my word. The believers at Philadelphia have held steadfastly to the gospel. And in the face of those making mockery of the gospel, these Christians held their ground on the truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. And he says, and they have a little strength left. The lesson of Philadelphia is that you can be too big for God to use, but you'll never be too small for God to use. The opportunity of an open door is talked about here. And in, in the New Testament, the phrase an open door is, is a common phrase. It means or speaks primarily of an opportunity for service, for ministry. The church at Philadelphia was to walk through the door that, the Christ, that Christ had opened, that they were continue to preach the gospel, continue to remain faithful as a lampstand that held forth the light of the world. Paul said in his letter to the Philippians in, verse, in chapter 2 and verse 15, Oh, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Not only to continue to preach the gospel, but to participate in good works which God has prepared for them. Remember Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, which says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I think there's always the argument that we as a church need to understand that the Lord allows us to stand before an open door in our own community, and what we do with that opportunity is up to us. The third thing that we see is the consolation of the church in verse 9 and 10. First of all, the Lord promises that their their enemies will be defeated. 
And secondly, he promises them that their lives will be vindicated. He says, those who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, indeed I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. He is not saying that their enemies are going to come and worship them, but rather that they're going to come and worship with them. And the statement about the synagogue of Satan is not evidence of some kind of anti-Semitism. It is, after all, John, who is the author of this book, and he himself is a Jew. But it reminds us that Satan is the source of all religious persecution. There are three ways in which this could be fulfilled. It could be fulfilled by the conversion of the enemy. Paul could attest to this change of view from being an enemy of the church himself to its greatest missionary. In their enemies coming to them for help during times of trouble. That's a second way that it could be fulfilled. Or third, by the acknowledgement of all on the day of judgment. Philippians chapter 2 and verses 10 and 11 say, For at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so the Lord promises them that they will also be preserved in verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the earth to test those who dwell on the earth. The Lord says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. He promises the church at Sardis that they would go through the great tribulation. He promises the church at Philadelphia they will not go through the great tribulation. And when it comes to the to eschatology, the study of end times, we place ourselves in the church age. Jesus has promised that he is going to come back and that he's going to take his bride, the church, to his father's house in heaven. There are going to be seven years of tribulation on the earth, not Every Christian believes that we're going to be taken before the tribulation. Some believe that we'll be taken out halfway through, after three and a half years. There are some Christians who believe that Christians are going to live through all seven years of the tribulation. I believe the Bible teaches that Christians are going to be raptured. I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10 becomes the key biblical verse in determining the time of the rapture. If Philadelphia represents all of the churches and it is promised that it will not enter the tribulation, how will God fulfill this? Well, the most satisfactory answer, I believe, is that of a pre-tribulation rapture. He says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial. Couldn't it just be talking about personal troubles that you go through? Well, keep reading because he says, this is a trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. 
What is the terrible time of tribulation he's talking about? Well, Matthew chapter 24, we read that Jesus says in Matthew 24, 21, when he's talking about that time coming on the earth, he says, he says there shall be a great tribulation such as not been, been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. There is going to be a time of tribulation, and Jesus says to the church, I'm going to keep you from it. The most natural way to understand that is the idea of keeping something from it is that the, is, this is a worldwide tribulation, and they're being preserved or kept out of this time. First Thessalonians chapter 4 In verses 13 and following, it says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain in the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then they who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air, in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And thus shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible and shall be changed. The pre-tribulation rapture is the belief that God will will remove believers from the earth before the tribulation. Dave Williamson, who was at the time serving on the mission field in Nepal, closed one of his prayer letters with these words, Love to you all in whom whose coming keeps us going. I think that is the essence of the blessed hope that we find described in Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Before I leave the subject completely, let me just say I think the one danger of the pre, is a belief in the pre-tribulation rapture is those who hold to, the, to that to the extent that they believe that Christians will never go through any kind of persecution, any kind of suffering, and that certainly is not true. We've seen it over and over and that things could get very, very difficult and very, very intense before we reached what is considered a biblical day of tribulation. And notice forth the counsel that is given to the church in in chapter 3 and verse 11. He says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He says, Hold fast because I am coming. The essentials of a spiritual church as we see in Philadelphia, was evangelism, discipleship, missions, and a strong biblical teaching. He says, secondly, beware, let no man take your crown. 
Crowns in the New Testament refer to rewards, not salvation. It is not possible to lose your salvation, but it is possible to lose your reward. And fifth, the challenge to the church is found in verses 12 and 13. First of all, the promises given to the overcomer in verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. And he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. First of all, it speaks of establishment. He says you will be pillars. Pillars speak of strength. Pillars support the building, and they provide stability. He says he shall go out no more. One of the things that you perhaps should need to know about the city of Philadelphia was that it was built on the fault line. And that it was subject to earthquakes. The city had at times, well, at least in AD 17, was completely destroyed by an earthquake. And so when he says that they will be pillars, he's talking about uh, something that they can equate to, they can understand. He says, he who has but a little strength is going to be made a pillar of strength. And then he speaks of ownership. He says, they will bear God's name. Kind of an interesting concept, just as the followers of the Antichrist will be branded with the mark of the beast, 666, so the children of God will receive a discernible mark. Perhaps instead of marked on their forehead, 666, there is a new name written, written by God's own hand. It speaks of belonging to God. It also speaks of citizenship, and they will bear the name of the city of God. They will be identified <clears throat> with the new Jerusalem. This city is so grand, so amazing, that it takes two chapters of the book of Revelation to describe it. Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22 are given over completely to the description of this marvelous new city that God has created. 21 and 22 are given over to describing this holy city that the believers will live in for eternity. And then it speaks of relationship. Write upon him my new name. This name is further described in Revelation 19, 12, where it says, And a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Perhaps it is the, the culmination of all the names given down through the centuries to reveal the different qualities of his character. And it ends with a plea in verse 13. With such promises, he would not want to listen carefully. But just in case someone missed the revel and the importance of this message, Christ closes with this reminder. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your preserved word that it's here for us to guide us and direct us, to encourage us, to challenge us. 
And so, Lord, help us to live our lives in such a way that we can have that which the church at Philadelphia had. We want to be a church characterized by those same great traits, by a desire to reach our community with the gospel, by a desire to see people grow in their relationship with you, with a desire to reach out around the world in missions, carrying the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. We want to be a, a church that characterized by strong Bible teaching. And Lord, we ask that we could be that which would be pleasing in your sight, that brings honor and glory to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.